Welcome to another episode of the Republic of Football, driven by the helpful North Texas Honda dealers. It's their job to be helpful. We've got a great show today. My guest co-host, the incomparable Bruce Feldman. Bruce, he writes for Sports Illustrated. You can see him on the sidelines of games across our fair nation on Fox Sports Game Broadcasts. Bruce, you, you told me you were scheduled for jury duty, but you escaped today to join the show. Uh, besides jury duty, Bruce, what are your favorite strategies for surviving the offseason? Uh, you know, it's just about trying to find as many uh, unique stories as I can and just kind of honestly catch my breath a little bit yeah. just because of you know the travel for me, especially, you know, you mentioned I'm doing sideline. It's a lot more uh, on the road and in, in season than I ever did before. Mm-hmm. Just I leave my house usually Thursday mornings, come back Sunday afternoons. So it's a little more hectic. And we this year our crew did uh, a lot of Big Ten games, so I'm in a lot of long flights and, and long travel days. So just it's a good chance to you know kind of catch my breath. But um, you know I was out, able to get on the road for a couple of weeks this spring, and that was good. And just got back from conference meetings and saw a bunch of people, and now just have a lot of stuff to transcribe on my tape recorder. But other than that, um, you know, I feel like the off seasons are just become like I don't want to say shorter, but I just feel like there's more stuff that goes on in the off season than it than it felt like it did ten years ago. And I think a lot of that has to do with just social media, and and that either creates more stuff or more stuff just kind of gets out where you have to react, react to it. Yeah, I don't think college football is quite where the NFL is, where it's legitimately a 12-month sport. But it's it, you're right, it's creeping that way. Uh, and especially when we get to uh, a, a realignment summer of 2022 or so, you might be it might be even more intriguing, or 2021 might be more intriguing. But yeah, there, we still have a couple months where there's not much going on. But yeah, between spring football and then spring meetings, and, and like you were saying, the, the conference meetings out in Phoenix and commissioners meetings in Dallas, there's always, somebody's always meeting that it seems to be worthwhile to uh to be standing outside the, the the meeting room waiting for them to go to the bathroom or something along those lines uh we'll start with the news from the weekend uh trey watson missed uh, most of last season with a torn acl but ran for 1390 yards in his cal career he's joining the texas longhorns as a graduate transfer he'll be immediately eligible We'll get to his place uh, among the burn orange in a bit, but Bruce, you live on the West Coast. You're, you're familiar with him. Uh, we've seen him a little bit. What, what is Texas getting in uh, in Mr. Trey Watson? Well, you know, I think they're getting a solid running back. I don't know if I would say they're getting you know what you'd expect from a, a UT running back. He's had some injuries at you know at times has had trouble staying staying on the field. I mean, he missed almost all of last year. Um, you know, he's been productive. I think what, one thing he does is he has a pretty good receiver out of the backfield. Um, but, again, you know, in Sonny Dykes' offense a few years ago, you know, he had a he had a productive year. Again, I, I don't want to overstate it because sometimes I feel like when it comes to grad transfers, we get all over our skis about who they are. And, and a lot of times, you know, the programs that they're leaving – feel like hey we got somebody better and it's not like those places necessarily in this case have like Saquon Barkley they have a good back but so I think uh what's what's key is when you're Texas you know we did a couple of their games when they had uh Deontay Foreman he was just such a workhorse and Texas has had obviously you know great backs Earl Campbell way back when Ricky Williams you know and a bunch of others in between and I just feel like that part doesn't seem like they have that right now. And so as Tom Herman tries to really build this thing up, they're going to have to find ways to to get the running game cranked up. And, you know, when he was at Ohio State, he had a great one in Ezekiel Elliott. And I don't know if this is, you know, I think this is right now a stopgap solution until they figure it out. Yeah, you touched on it. I mean, the depth chart at running back, we'll say it's welcoming at Texas. <laughs> Daniel Young and Antonio Carter are there. But, but really, anybody who watched Texas knows that last year, their best running back was was Sam Ellinger, you know, and and Keonta Ingram, the next in what's been a long line of elite running back recruits at Texas, will be there this summer. I, I think you're right. I think Watson probably fits into the rotation. Maybe he ends up being the lead back. I mean, some of these things are hard to predict, and, and Herman has been a guy who's been known to ride the hot hand um, at a number of positions, but, but definitely that one. Where do you think, you know, when you look at what Texas is getting and you look at, at where the depth chart is, where do you think Watson ultimately ends up fitting in uh, on this Longhorns roster? You know, I think he's probably a 
you know, a part of a combination. And again, you know, I wasn't down there this spring, um, so I can't tell you exactly who looked well. And, you know, I think that Herb Hand coming in to work with the offensive line should be a good addition into how they, you know, work the run game. But again, I don't see, you know, when Charlie was there, they were going to ride, you know, they did, they struggled the quarterback. They were going to ride their one big back and it's almost to a fault because, you know, at times you'd see fumbles and everybody knew where it was coming. But it's kind of a head scratcher that Texas went 10 years without having any linemen drafted until just Connor Williams, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And I think it's a little bit of a head scratcher. You don't see that stable of feature backs because a couple of years ago, our crew did the Texas, Texas Tech Thanksgiving night game. And Chris Warren came in and he really hadn't, he came in because they had had some injuries. And granted, it was Texas Tech and they had an abysmal defense back then, but he just ran all over them. And you just wonder, okay, where is that factor going to be? Because I think you're right. I mean, when your quarterback is the main guy and your quarterback really isn't, it's not like he's Cam Newton. I mean, he's a good running quarterback, but let's keep it in perspective, especially in that league where some of the defenses are pretty suspect. Uh, Again, I think this is a work in progress for where Tom wants this offense to be. Mm -hmm. I would agree with you on that. Uh, Elsewhere in the state, before we get to the I wanted to give a tip of the cap. A congratulations and well wishes to uh, Luke Laufenberg, the Aggies tight end. His father is Babe Laufenberg, uh, former Cowboys uh, quarterback, local TV personality here in Dallas. He's been battling a rare form of leukemia. Babe tweeted on uh, Thursday night that Luke was declared cancer-free. So that's awesome, awesome news. Congrats to uh, his family, and, and here's hoping that he stays that way. Um, Watson, Trey Watson, his old head coach, Sonny Dykes, will be joining us later but Bruce Sonny's arrival at SMU, I think, um, was met with uh, I don't I, I would say faint praise. That seems you know understandable, uh, but probably not completely fair. I mean, not long ago, Dykes was on the short list of, of sort of the hottest up and coming coaches in, in college football. Louisiana Tech, I mean, they were absolutely cooking in his last two years there. That, that game they played with a Johnny Football led A uh, and M team that was one of the best of that uh, 2012 season. Uh, it didn't go well for him at Cal, but he did produce a number one NFL pick. What, from your perspective, what sort of went wrong for him in, in that first sort of big major job? Well, I think it was just a shaky fit there. Uh, let's be honest. Cal has some some really good attributes to it as a job. I mean, you're around a lot of players in that state. It's a great education. But I think one of the bigger drawbacks is you wonder who's in charge. I mean, little detail stuff is hard to get figured out there, and I think Sonny kind of realized that the commitment to playing football at the highest level from his bosses, whoever they really were, was was shaky at best. And I think that's why you saw Sonny at times interviewing to try to, to get out. And I think because of that, it became this cycle where I think a lot of the players there wondered, okay, does, does Coach want to really be here? And that didn't help. I think it took... I took. I think it took them a while to figure out the defensive side of the ball, um, and it's not that unique to guys who either come from that air raid tree, where you know whether you look at Dana Holgerson, once he got Tony Gibson, it got better, but there was a lot of. You know, I think Tony might have been the fourth coordinator in four years on that side of the ball. I think you you saw that with Michael Leach when he he really whiffed on his first DC hire at Washington State till he got Alex Grinch there, and you can even look, even though Kevin Sumlin isn't you know, really from the leech tree. I mean, he did have Cliff Kingsbury and then Jake Spavitol running the offense. Defensively, I'm not sure he ever got it right in College Station. You know, he had Mark Snyder, and then, you know, they spent a lot of money to go get John Travis, and that didn't work out. So I think that's a that's a challenge there for those guys. And like I said, it didn't really get, get resolved with Sonny, but what's interesting is if you go back, and I, I went to visit uh, SMU, him at SMU probably a month or so ago, and we kind of talked about a bunch of stuff. And one of those things was, so he gets into, into I think it was year three, and they're kind of rolling along. They're, they crack in the top 25, and they're playing on the road at Utah. And Utah's a top five team. And they have a chance to win that game. I think Cal is 5-0. and They had won at Texas. They'd won at Washington, and they, you know, they beat Wazoo. Um and then they end up losing that game. And then all of a sudden, instead of them probably being in the top 15, they're out of the rankings. And then they go on the road the next week and get drilled at UCLA. Um, in that game, I think I was at that game where it was a uh, Jared Goff versus 
Josh Rosen game and Rosen lit them up. And I think that team that went started out five and zero, like lost five of their next six games. And I'm not saying if they win at Utah, they go play in the playoff. But I think maybe then they have a breakout season and they can build on it. Instead, you know, they're just they're just getting kicked around, and then you know by that by that next season he was gone. So it's weird how kind of frazzled is because, like he said, I think Sonny's really smart, and I think when you looked at what he did at Louisiana Tech when he got that place kind of going a little bit, um, you know, I just ultimately think it was just not a great fit, and I think him at SMU actually is a much better fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, when you when you see it on paper, I, I get the fans that weren't super uh, excited about it, but the more I looked at it, and then I, I was also at SMU a few weeks ago, you talk to him, you know, the more you sort of put it together, you're like, Man, this really might work. And I think, too, SMU being a great uh, group of five job, I, I think, you know, strangely enough, I think he feels like he's more set up for success there uh, than he was at Cal. I mean, he, you know, I, I've referenced this, on, referenced this on the show, but he said, you know, for his support staff, he had, you know, $300,000 at Cal for, you know, all of his non-staff uh, positions. He's got, at SMU, he's got $1.6 million. That's a huge difference, and so uh, we'll see. I mean, I, you know, as you'll hear later when he joins the show, he loves being back in the state, and he was an analyst for TCU last year. How do you think ultimately this plays out for uh, Sonny Dykes at SMU? I think he'll do well there. And I don't know if, what what exactly is doing well now. Is that is that winning seven or eight games? I mean, they're in a conference that they should do well. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of your recruiting infrastructure, what you have around you, you know, Houston, SMU, UCF, uh, USF, those are in, in prime places. You know, I, it's funny because I think Chad Morris did some good things there, but it's not like the cupboard he walked into is loaded. You know, I think Chad Morris probably picked a good time to get out. You lose two really good receivers, you know, to the NFL. I think, you know, I think we might have done, our crew might have done Ben Hicks' first start. He was kind of pressed in through injury where the starter, I think, was going to be lost for the year. And it was at Baylor. And, you know, Ben Hicks was a pretty good recruit for SMU to land. I think he'll have, you know, some pretty good running backs there. Receiving core is obviously depleted. But I think Sonny will patch that together. Uh, You know, he knows the state. Well, ultimately, again, the question is going to be, you know, can he get them more than six or seven wins? I think he can, um, but I just don't know. You know, is this a case where Sonny Dice gets them to you know seven or eight, and then all of a sudden some other job that is in the Big Twelve comes open, and he's more intrigued, and then he bounces for it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I, I want to say he lives like a sand wedge away from the practice field, you know, and has young kids, and uh, I think it's a pretty desirable situation for him. It's just. You know, we got to wait and see. I mean, because right now, I don't think this team is a seven-win team. I think it's probably a four or five-win team. But, but uh, you know, again, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, I like you. I think the more I thought about this fit, the better it. The better it appeared to be because I'm remembering Sonny Dykes from from a dud final year there. Yeah. And not from kind of what he did at Louisiana Tech or how he fits there. Mm-hmm. Well, we're in the thick of the off season. I'm sure you know, and and as you survey the programs in the state of Texas, is there something you think is going to have an impact this fall that people aren't paying enough attention to? That that you think is really going to be something that we're either talking about or or uh, impacts how the season plays out in the state of Texas this fall? You mean in terms of a person or a program? Really, anything? Uh, just anything that that's that's going on in this state that you think is not getting enough attention? You know. I- there's so much eyeballs on Jimbo Fisher. He, you know, he won a national title at Florida State. His contract is enormous. You know, I'm fascinated to see what's going to go on there. There's some players there now. Is it enough to, to overtake Alabama? I don't think so. But I look at the SEC in general as a really a league in flux. With you have two programs right now that are on blast. It's like Alabama's obviously just won a national title. And Georgia played for a national title and signed a number one ranked class. Then I look around and I see a lot of other programs trying to rebuild or reload. The SEC West, the SEC East is a mess. It's basically Georgia, and then you've got some other programs who are doing about as well as they've done in a while, which would be like you know Kentucky or you know that. But then you just see 
Tennessee is is trying to rebuild after a debacle of the last season. Florida has been dreadful on offense. You look at some of these other you know programs in the in the West. You know Arkansas. You got a new head coach there. Uh, you have some shakeup at Mississippi State, but I think Joe Moorhead could have a good you know good first year because of what Mullen left behind him. I look at I look at uh, Ole Miss where they're coming off sanctions and they're digging out of it. You know LSU has to re- has to find a quarterback and replace really good running backs, and I don't know if they have anybody there. So. You know, when I look at this league, um, I think there's opportunity there for Jimbo Fisher and, and, and Texas A&M. But for one reason or another, you know, the closest they've had to really a big year was the Manziel wins the Heisman year. And then other than that, it's been like a lot of eight-win seasons. And even that so, was like, what, 10-2? and two. So, yeah, or 11-2. and two, I, think. I think even that year was like 11-2, and two, I think, right? It was. They finished fifth in the country. It was yeah. the first time in over 50 years they did that. But then it was it was kind of backslid to to being pretty good, and they've never been. I can't remember a time when this program was great, you know. So Jimbo's there with high expectations, and you know, again, I would go back to a little bit what we talked about with SMU. What do you define as success? And considering Jimbo's track record, and considering the money he's getting paid, I think success is you got to get in the playoff. Now you have to win national titles. I'm sure that's what they're expecting at some point, but I think they at least got to get in the playoffs. And it can't be, you know, a one great year. I mean, someone had one great year, and then all of a sudden it wears off. So uh, I'm fascinated by what's going on there. Obviously, you know, Texas is, is still trying to build back up. Um, Gary Patterson keeps winning a ton of games. He's not going anywhere. He's not going away. Um, and I think Oklahoma showed with Lincoln Riley that they're ready. They have they have made a transition from one great coach to a to a really bright young coach, and I think there's a little shine on Oklahoma. And obviously, they're going to spend a bunch of time, you know, living in the state of Texas to build those players. So it's a fascinating kind of confluence of stuff going on. Just it's just in the Lone Star State. Mm-hmm. Is there a team or or a player or, or anything that you feel like is getting maybe too much hype? that you think the hype machine is running a little hot, a little hot on them, a little hotter than they should? In the state of Texas or just overall? In the state of Texas, yeah. Um, good question. Um, you know, I don't know if I would say say that at this point just because, you know, I'm looking around and between, you know, I don't think there's a guy at Texas A&M, anybody's just, you know, raving about right now. I don't think there's that guy at 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 Texas or you know at, at SMU or or at Houston. Um, you know, when I look at at TCU, I went through there. I didn't feel like you know a lot of their best players, especially on defense, were not in spring ball. Mm-hmm. So that kind of kind of mutes it. Um, I don't see that at necessarily at Texas Tech either, just because it's been a while since they had a big year. Um, maybe if you threw somebody out and say, if you said to me, if you told me who you think are the three most hyped guys who, not Texans, but are playing in, in the state of Texas right now, I'd be curious as to like, to hear who they were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, is it, I mean, is it, you know, you have a, a really athletic kid who transferred from Tennessee as a running back to play receiver at Baylor, but in Jalen Hurd, I, I just don't know if, if, uh, you know, I just haven't heard it. You know, bad pun. I just haven't heard a ton about people <laughs> talking. You know, Baylor. Or yeah, they like seem just, to like him there, but I, I'm skeptical. Like you, I, I want to see it. Uh, I don't know that the transition from running back to slot receiver is quite as seamless as as they'd like to see. I mean, I think they like that he's a big body, but you know, we'll see if this is a we're talking about a thousand yard receiver. I'm 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 skeptical, but we'll see. I mean, uh, you know, I, he could be great. We will find out. Um. So, I have a habit of asking people this. Uh, you famously wrote a book with Mike Leach. Nobody in this business more connected with the air raid tree. I gotta tell a quick story. I remember back in 2010, uh, I met Dana Holgerson for the first time. He was jumping on from Houston to uh, Oklahoma State. I shook his hand. I said, "You know, I'm, I was with ESPN." He had one question for me. You know what that question was, Bruce? Uh, with him, it could be almost anything. It, it really could, be, could, but he said it could be like, "Hey, where's the bar? Do you, you know, what do you?" 
<laughs> you, you stick on 16. I don't I don't. He said, do you know Bruce? And I said, I do. Really? I, I know, yeah, I know. We, we won't rehash either of our uh, days or exits from ESPN, but why do you think uh, – that tree has been so fruitful. I'll get to my big question later, but you know how mummy sort of the Godfather leech kind of the King, but there's so many great coaches that have come from that tree. What is your best guess as to why that is? I think there's a lot of the guys who come up in that system are not afraid to try things or do things how they to, to kind of buck the system and go, you know what? It's almost like the, the tendency of the air raid is, is defy convention. You know, and Dana Holgerson is different in that, in one sense, he sounds exactly like Mike. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like, you know, you know, they're not smokers, but it sounds like they smoke, you know, because they're, like, kind of <laughs> the, gravelly the throated. <laughs> yeah, so there's that. Um, he, 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 you know, he's brutally honest like Mike. I mean, he's, he's, he's awesome in the TV meetings where he's mm-hmm. going to tell you whatever thinks and there's no sugarcoating it. Um, but on the field... He's really different from Mike. I mean, you go back to when he took over at Oklahoma State as the OC and some of the stuff that he introduced. I mean, he's a brilliant football mind, every bit as sharp as Mike Leach is. But, like, Mike Leach is kind of, he's not changed. You know, he is, like, the original in terms of this is what I do. I'm not, I don't care. You know, he had, an air, he had a, uh, a, one of the two guys who really created the pistol offense. One was Chris Alt and the guy he had was Jim Master was his running back coach. And he went way back with Jim Master 20-plus years. Master goes to work for Washington State. There is no, you know, implementing of any pistol stuff. Because in Mike Leach's mind, if I'm going to add something, I'm taking something out. Mm-hmm. And what am I taking out? And the answer is almost always nothing. Well, with, with uh, Dana, he's really shifted it up and changed and bought in more to the run game, bought in more to looking around, what do I have to do defensively to, as a head coach to make all this work? So I think in that regard, you know, he is, you know, he divided the convention of defying the convention of almost Mike Leach's ways while taking stuff and, and mixing it. And I, so I think you have those guys. And, and the one thread above all is they know how to put points on the board. They just have a feel for, you know, they don't need – you know, a bunch of four- and five-star guys. You look at Cliff. I think Cliff is a brilliant offensive mind. Uh, you certainly see it with Lincoln Riley, who learned under Mike. And so they take the elements they get from Mike, but then all of a sudden, you know, in some ways, and I think Lincoln will tell you this, he learned as much. Yeah, he learned a lot from Mike, but he learned a lot from Bob Stoops and he learned a lot from Donnie Duncan. He learned something from Link, from uh, Ruffin McNeil. And so... You know, yeah, that's that's. There's a big chunk of the diet is comes from Mike Leach, but I think these guys are smart enough to go. Okay, Mike isn't. We love him, but he ain't to be all end all of everything. You know, and so I think that's what works. And I think Dana's smart enough to have kind of, you know, he was spent time around Kevin Sumlin in Houston. And he took I mean, Kevin Sumlin's really different from Mike Leach. Maybe not just in the X and O's, but in just in how he handles a team. And I think Dana picked up some of those. And so um, it's kind of a fascinating evolution of all these guys. They go to do their thing, whether it's, whether it's you know, Dana or Cliff or Seth Luttrell at North Texas. You know, they all kind of are, are interconnected. And last week in Arizona, a bunch of them were sitting around a fire pit telling stories. And, <laughs> and Mike's the craziest of them. But, mm-hmm. but you know, <laughs> hard to say who's the smartest of them because it might not be Mike. Yeah. Uh, over the course of your time with him, my 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 big question is: What is your best Mike Leach story? What is what? Say that one more time. Your best Mike Leach story. Um, my favorite Mike Leach story might be this: um, the week before they were going, the week they were going to play at Texas. It was actually Leach's last game against Texas. I mean, nobody knew it at the time, but mm-hmm. they were going to play at UT and. Uh, Taylor Potts was their quarterback, and you know they had a pretty good team, but not a great team. You know, I would say it was probably an eight or nine win kind of team. And you know, obviously, that was a big game. I think that was the year after the Crabtree game. Yeah, it'd be two thousand nine. You know, yeah, and, yeah. And so I'm there with them for a week to work on the book, and then I'm going to fly with them to to, to Austin. And 
we started, we got a script from the folks at Friday Night Lights. He was going to appear on the show. It's like, you know, people can YouTube this. It was like the, you know, he's, he's approached, he, he, he runs into the coach at the gas station mm-hmm. or whatever and gives advice. And I said, the first part of this is, I can't imagine Nick Saban or Urban Meyer, almost any head coach, the Friday night before a game, much less a big game, going off to work and act uh, on a TV <laughs> show. But Mike was. So I said, hey, are you at all nervous about this acting thing? And he goes, huh, not really. I've, I've, you know, I've acted before. I'm like, when? When have you acted in anything? You know, like, and it was almost like just kind of, Normally, if it was anybody else, I just would have like kind of not been. I didn't want to sound disrespectful, but it was kind of like, yeah, like, what? Are you what? <laughs> yeah. He proceeded to tell me about how he was in a, a TV series or like a, a, a mini series, and also in a movie. You know, there, and then he started telling me what they were, and that he had an agent uh, back when he was in law school, living out here in California when he went to Pepperdine. And I said, what were the movies? And the, the movie is called Grunt, the wrestling movie. You can find that on YouTube. I'm Googling um, this as we speak. <laughs> yeah. It'll take you a while to find. Lisa's like an extra and like a security, like a, as a security guard around the wrestling. <laughs> and the other movie, the other was like a two-part miniseries um, about J. Edgar Hoover. So it just was weird. And then, so as I'm working on this book, you know, part of the way I was kind of pulling stuff out of out of Leach's stories, sometimes, like, they just tell a story. But how Mummy filling, filling in the gaps of Leach's story works much better. You find out a lot of the other guys tell the stories better than Mike does. And um, so I reached out to his, I found his old agent, and uh, I, I, you know, I started asking him questions, and the guy didn't remember Mike, and then... Finally, I uh, he goes he goes why are you ask why are you, like why are you doing this or why are you asking me about this guy would something happen to him I said well no he ended up going on to be this big successful college football coach he goes, <laughs> he goes wait a minute that's the Mike Leach you're talking to me about and I said <laughs> I said yeah he goes wait I represented that guy and then we started talking and what was crazy was his agent actually at one point I think represented OJ in movies and represented a bunch of pro wrestlers so. <laughs> Um, it was just, it was just a, a kind of a weird with Mike Leach. You never know where the story's going to go, but it's probably not where anybody else, any other football coach's story goes. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm astounded. And now my homework is to watch Grunt, the wrestling movie on YouTube this afternoon. You, you have, you know, you have ruined my productivity and I, and I assume the productivity of our legions of listeners, Bruce, this is on you. Do you know how much money you're costing the American economy by telling that story? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a touch. It is just not. There's been some bad pro wrestling movies. I would imagine this is kind of one of the worst. <laughs> You're probably right. Uh, so I have a the- I have a theoretical to throw by you. Uh, Cliff Kingsbury obviously has a lot to prove this year. His job status, he's admitted, is tenuous. Mike Leach has a new boss in Pullman. He was almost Tennessee's head coach. No secret, he was not super against the idea of leaving Pullman last year. He could be lured away. Bruce, if Texas Tech comes open, is there a universe in which Mike Leach makes a return to West Texas? Wow. Um, I doubt it. I, I doubt it. I know he loves the fan base, mm-hmm. but, man, there's so much bad history there. There's bad history you know? and, there's, and there's egos, but there's also a lot of people who are tired of losing football games. Yeah, so let's start with the Washington State part. So I, they like, they being he and Sharon, his wife, really like it up there. Um, he loved his AD, Bill Moose, who is now who left last season to go be the Nebraska AD. Bill Moose was the perfect AD for Mike. Mike really was good for, for Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leach also loved the chancellor of the school, Dr. Elton Floyd. They had a really good relationship. Former Mizzou and, chancellor, yes. I'm sorry? Former Mizzou chancellor, yes, when I was there. I didn't, I didn't realize that, yeah. So he had, and I, I'm trying to remember what the illness was, but he ended up passing away mm-hmm. probably a year ago. And I think that was hard on Mike, too. And so I think, 
know, some of the circumstances around there are not as ideal as they were. Um, but getting back to the Texas Tech piece of this, like, I don't doubt that there could be some people who would want to bring Mike back. Yeah, there I don't definitely doubt, will be. Yeah, I don't doubt that Mike, in, in, in the way back part of his mind, where all this other crazy stuff, you know, I actually, all the crazy stuff might be in the front of his mind. I don't know what's in the back <laughs> of his mind. Maybe personal thought, but he probably is like, yeah, I could ride back on the horse and be, you know, kind of the conquering hero. And I don't know. I, I think part of him saw Cliff getting the job as a little bit of a a win for him because it was like they got to hire like Cliff is like one of, one of his sons, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And so I think he saw that them having to hire Cliff. Uh, believe me, I don't think he shed a tear over Tuberville leaving that way he did. But <laughs> him, him or anyone but, uh, else in Lubbock, I think. <laughs> apparently not. Yeah. So, but I don't. I don't know, and I don't know as honest as he would be. I just don't know if I get, if you get a straight answer from him on that because I think it'd be it'd be a little awkward for a minute for him to wrap his mind around. All right they're going to get rid of Cliff and then they're going to bring me in. Mm-hmm. I think he would get over that part of it. I just, you know, I just think it would be so bizarre that if he would go back there, because obviously as he has not been so shy about saying, he thinks they still owe him quite a bit of money. I believe that is true. Yes, they do. So, I don't know, man. There's That's... a lot of hurdles. But I will say this. It does sound crazy. But what if I told you a year ago that – Texas A&M was going to steal one of the five best coaches in college football from Florida State. Stranger things have happened. Never say never in uh, in the world of, of college coaching. I will say that. Wait, wait, wait. What are we saying to stranger than Mike Leach coming back to Texas Tech? <laughs> That's, okay, listen. I'll give you this. Mike Leach coming back to Texas Tech would be, it would be very, very weird. But, I don't know if it would be. The only thing weirder than Mike Leach coming back to coach Texas Tech would be Mike Leach coming back to coach Texas Tech and naming Craig James as running back. <laughs> I look forward to seeing that uh, that alternate universe uh, exist. So I'm, that, I'm well, I'm guarantee will not happen, by the way. But that's about <laughs> as bizarre as, um, you know, although, I don't know. Like, I, I obviously know Mike's side of it, and I mm-hmm. know about the docs that are out there. You know, he talked to some people, and they're like, you know what, Ken Hans really used to love Leach. And then they had the blow-up, and then it got really nasty. Mm-hmm. And I don't know Ken Hans. I mean, I think I've met him once before, but I know Mike. And Mike is the most stubborn human stubborn human being I know in terms <laughs> of, like, of any adult. I mean, I was, you know, a kid that I think might be more stubborn than Mike, but, but like, he is the most stubborn human being I know. And he's the most stubborn human being probably that works in a business and football coaches that a lot of them are really stubborn. Yeah. I would be fascinated. Just the fact that you said, what if I told you that would be a great, <laughs> well, I'll watch that. I'll watch that one. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so Bruce, you can come with me to our weekly food corner segment. I have a confession for a second. I wanted to tell you, uh, our listeners, about this. I, I I teased it on last week's episode. In short, I checked off an entry on my lifetime food bucket list last week. I participated in some market research, a taste test for a major food company. I tried some new products, got some free product of something I already loved. Unfortunately, as I arrived, I had to sign an NDA, also known as a non-disclosure agreement. Unlike some figures at the center of American scandals, I did not agree to say I did not sign an NDA, but I can't tell you anything about my experience, sadly. Maybe one day when the statute of limitations runs out. But until then, I apologize. However, Food Corner, not canceled. I have some thoughts later. Bruce, is there a favorite or a memorable meal in the state of Texas that you sometimes dream about? Yeah. um, Oof. I got a bunch there. I mean, you know, my, my in-laws still live in the Dallas area, so there's a bunch. I think the only time, by the way, I'm not sure if I was with you, but my only Pecan Lodge trip was... I think we were. I, yeah, I think you were yeah. with us. It was like the Cotton Bowl, or I think it was like the Michigan State-Alabama Cotton Bowl semifinal? That sounds right. No, it wasn't Michigan... No, it wasn't that. It was It was at the... It must have been the national... It was the Ohio State... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Ohio State-Oregon. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. 
Dude, I didn't. I was at the other semifinal. I didn't cover Michigan State, yeah. Alabama. That out. So, but so, um, God, this doesn't count. I'm trying to remember my my kind of brother-in-law got. He and my sister-in-law went out. Uh, I was just in Texas like a month ago, and I'm trying to remember the place they went to where they left at, on a Saturday morning at like left the house at 9.30 to wait in line for two hours <laughs> at a place that only is, like, open on Saturdays, like, once a month. Yeah, the, the um, sad thing about Texas is there's, like, ten places like that, so I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that was the best ribs I've ever had. Um, you know, this is, this is, I don't know if this counts. So I was probably late on the, I'm a huge Torchies fan. Okay. And... I remember George Schroeder, who is a uh, lives in Norman. We, I was coming in somewhere to to meet with him, uh, not to meet with him, just to grab grab dinner. And for some reason, like he had once taken me to some like healthy saladish place, and he was like, "Well, there's a Torchies down the street." I'm like, "No, let's go to the salad place." And I don't know why I was I must not have had a meal the day before he had got taken me to the other place because I was like. This wasn't very good. <laughs> Ever since then, every trip that, like, we were in the Big 12 a lot in 2016, every Friday I would take my, my producer, because there's a Torchies down the street from the state, you know, from where we stay in Lubbock. There's obviously in Austin. They're, you know, pretty much everywhere in the mm-hmm. Big 12. Um, I go every Friday. You know, I went a couple, a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, you know, when I was, Went right after I went to see SMU and Sunny Dykes. There's one right over there. I mean, that is like a must stop for me. Now, that's not exactly what most people would think of when you think of, you know, big Texas food. <laughs> but for me, that's like a go-to all the time. So much so that for our podcast that I do with Stu Mandel, um, we were like, we want to try to make that a sponsor. And it has become to no avail. I've reached out. <laughs> I'm up in but I'm still I'm still a loyal customer. Food companies and put po- and podcast sponsorships. If you're not Blue Apron, it's a tough go. What's your, what's your go to order at uh, at Torchies? It's not fancy. It's basically one steak and one and one chicken taco. It's the rare place where the chicken taco might actually be better than the steak one. So interesting. Yeah. Well, I am a I am a breakfast food loyalist. I love a breakfast taco. Uh, simply put, I think it's the best food. I I went to a new place in Frisco this weekend, the Biscuit Bar. You need to hear about this place, Bruce, and all of our listeners as well. Great idea. Let's build an entire restaurant around the biscuit, and it's even great. It's even better execution. They have all kinds of different uh, sandwiches. Obviously, the biscuits they bring the heat every time. It was delicious. Uh, I rocked the standard bacon, egg, and cheese. And it, my wife and I, a veritable feast. And it was like 25 bucks. It was amazing. Well, Highly recommend. I'll tell you what, you know what's underrated? We like Our crew will go out every Friday night to a big dinner. Mm-hmm. And the two best meals we had last year, one was at, at Benvenuti in Norman, which is a good Italian place. But the other one was at Bob's at the hotel we stay at in Fort Worth. And the crazy thing about that is it's rare when you can get a bunch of people who are, you know, a lot of more in health nuts going, man, that's the best carrot I've ever eaten. It's <laughs> true. Like, like <laughs> everything there is phenomenal. Bruce, um, you, are, you are no fewer than the third person unprompted in eight episodes of this show to give a shout-out to Bob's Steak and Chop House. It's amazing. It is the best yeah, steak I've ever had and the best carrot I've ever had. So much better than, than any place, you know, any steakhouse we went to last year, whether it was in – you know, Columbus or, you know, around Michigan State or wherever. I mean, that place is legit. Mm-hmm. Well, Bruce, I appreciate it. That brings us to this week's guest, Sonny Dykes. We've talked about him a little bit. Now we get to hear from him. SMU's coach sits down with me to talk about his team, his season, his career, the leech coaching tree, and plenty more. Here's Sonny. This week's guest, uh, SMU coach Sonny Dykes. Sonny, what is it like for you to be back in Texas and have control of one of these programs? You've been uh, back in the state for a little while, but now you've got the reins of, of a program. What's that like for you? Yeah, it's been really exciting. I mean, this is this is home for me. Um, you know, grew up most of my life in Texas. Um, you know, just just grew up having an appreciation for Texas football. Played high school football here. Went to Texas Tech. Um, you know, just it's been a it's been a, a tremendous um, feeling for me just to get back to the area. You know, I recruited in Dallas probably 15 or 16 years of 
of the time I've been in college. And, and so I've spent a lot of time here with, with the high school coaches. I knew a lot of people, um, know my way around. Um, you know, it's just, it's just been a, an incredibly welcoming uh, environment. And, and I'm really excited about SMU. I really like our administration and, and have met a lot of the supporters. And, you know, it just seems like I'm, I'm coming in at a really good time. And so it's, it's been very, very exciting for me. And, again, just, just comforting for my family as well. You know, my wife is from Wichita Falls, um, you know, so it's been uh, been great to be around family and friends. And, um, you know, you know how it is. There's, it's like Dorothy said, there's no place like home. And so it's been it's been a blast to be back here and um, and, and get around familiar faces and people that that have a shared vision uh, for what a football program wants to look like and, and really just kind of a shared vision for a way of life. What's a, how would you sort of describe what Chad left you here? Well, I thought, I thought Chad did a really nice job building the program. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, June had this thing rolling. I think they went to four bowl games out of five years or maybe even four straight. Um, and, and so when June came in and, and, you know, and got hot and got it going, and then uh, it took a little bit of a dive at the end, and, and Chad came in and kind of started over and, and did things differently. Uh, the good thing that, that uh, and the thing I was really most most uh, pleased with and really in some ways pleasantly surprised just because you know culture so hard to build in a football program and I was really really happy with the culture that that uh, Chad and his staff built here you know the kids work hard uh, they like each other they're unselfish you know they handle their business off the field um, you know I think we had and again real credit to Chad I think they had six consecutive semesters of the highest team GPA they've had uh, at SMU academically and so that was you know that just shows you that the kids are doing the right things they're going to class they're working hard um, you know they're graduating at a high at a high rate um, you know and, and as I said there's a good culture uh, now there's some things we have to improve you know dramatically but um, but I think that was the the biggest takeaway was you know the kids know how to work um, they want to work they want to be pushed they want to be coached it's been a seamless transition. You know, it's been amazing. We haven't had, up to this point, we haven't had one kid that has left the program. You know, and normally when you when a head coach comes in and you have a new staff and, you know, there's normally a mass exodus. You yeah, normally really get, yeah, 10 or 12 guys leave the program. And we haven't had one up to this point. And so from that perspective, it's been about as smooth a transition as you can have. And, again, I think it, it talks a little bit about, uh, it speaks a little bit to Chad's culture, and I think uh, to credit to our coaches is here as well. I think it speaks speaks about them and their ability to to build trust with uh, with with players, and and um, and so you know I think Chad and I do things um, you know pretty similarly. We have pretty similar backgrounds, and and so there's a lot of carryover, but but also too you know we're going to emphasize different things. But kids have been great. Uh, my family and I are settled. We're really loving living in Dallas and being part of this community and really excited about the future. As the uh, coaching staffs have expanded, we've seen a, a growth of that, that analyst role. I don't know exactly, I don't know a lot of people, I don't know exactly what that looks like. I just know you can't really have that much contact with players, right? That's the, the main rule. Yep. What, so what was, what was your sort of role at, at TCU? What was that sort of like for you? Uh, you know, basically what I got to do was it was it was great. First of all, you know, Coach Patterson was awfully kind to, to give me the opportunity to do that. I uh, just felt like it was a perfect fit for me. You know, I was lucky to have some options and some opportunities, and some of them as, a, you know, coordinators and play callers. But I just really wanted to go to TCU and learn how Coach Patterson had had that success that he had had and, and wanted to see how he did a lot of things defensively. Um, so basically what I did is I worked on the offensive side of the ball. Um, you know, Sonny Cumbie, their coordinator, and I knew each other from, from Texas Tech, actually recruited Sonny uh, when he was coming out of, out of high school at Snyder High School back in 1999. And, uh, and so I've known him for a long time, and, and we'd remained friends through the years. And, um, and so, you know, my job was really just kind of help Sonny, you know, to, to try to provide some, expect, some perspective and some experience and, you know, and so what basically what I do is, is uh, you know, take notes at practice and, and make some suggestions here and there and, and uh, you know, and, and do what we could to try to, to help streamline the offense and, and make it as effective as we could. Mm-hmm. So what would, a week, what would a week sort of look like, a game week for you? Well, you know, I was in all the meetings with, with, with the coaches, and, and 
you know, in a lot of ways, it's like you're a coach, except you just can't, you don't have a position group that you meet with. And so instead of me meeting with players, you know, I kind of met with coaches. And, um, and you know, the great thing, Sonny and I had a, you know, shared vision about what we wanted things to look like. And, and I just tried to kind of provide feedback on, on what I saw and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, just try to learn for myself as well. So it was, it was a, a lot of fun, a great year. Um, you know, I thought, I thought Coach Patterson and the staff did, did a great job, obviously, at TCU. got to the Big 12 championship game, and, and um, you know, it was, it, was, it was really good for me. Yeah, when I was at, out at TCU a couple of weeks ago, you know, Gary was like, I had, I had Sonny in my program, now I know the innards of my program, and now, now i got to try to beat him. What's your, what's your take on that? What, what, what do you think? You well, I, I, don't, I don't think Gary's too worried about <laughs> us right now. I mean, Gary's got, got a, uh, he's got a lot of really good football players. They've recruited well. Um, he has a, uh, a really, you know, great foundation. I mean, he's been there for a long time. Um, you know, the thing that, that really kind of surprised me was just how good of players they had, honestly. When I went there, I'd been out of the out of the Big 12 for a while and obviously knew the success that TCU was having. But when I got there and we started spring ball last year, you know, I remember going, wow, there's a lot of really good football players here. I mean, a lot of depth. Um you know, tons of, of skill at the at the skill positions on offense. Um, you know, and then you know they're always going to be good on defense. I mean, Gary's going to going to get them right on the defensive side of the ball. And so I was really just impressed with their personnel, and and obviously impressed with the way they coached them. But his uh, their personnel is really really good, and you can tell that they've had. Uh, a lot of consistency in their coaching staff. You know, the, the guys have been recruiting the areas for a long time. They know the high school coaches. They know the players. Uh, the players know what to expect when they come to TCU. And and so, you know, I think that they're they're the model of consistency that everybody, you know, wants to achieve, I think, in college football, where, you know, the coaching staff's all been there together for a long time. The guys know how to work together. And then you've got Gary leading the program who – you know, has been there, you know, 20 years, I think, as an assistant, now 18, I think, or 19, and coming up as the head coach. And so, you know, he, he knows the kind of kids they can recruit. He knows the kind of kids that are going to be successful at TCU. Um, and so they've got that place, you know, really wired in and buttoned up, and, and you know, they're going to be good there for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Seeing a coach take over and then, and then coach a bowl game was pretty, was pretty rare. What, what sort of led you to, to make that decision, and, and, and what was that experience? Sort of yeah, I mean, the whole thing. do that so quickly. Yeah, the whole thing was weird. I mean, just uh, kind of the way it played out because there was, a, you know, there was an interim head coach that was a candidate for the job, and then, you know, when I got the job, that part was kind of a strange deal, and he felt like it was best to move on, which I totally understand. And, um, and so, you know, here was a bunch of kids that really didn't have any coaches. Uh, the defensive staff, you got to give Van Malone and, and the defensive staff a lot of credit. I mean, those guys hung around, stayed here, um, worked really hard, you know, handled the situation with about as much dignity and, and just uh, professionalism as somebody could. I mean, those guys were awesome. Um, you know, can't say enough about what they did for the kids. Um, you know, because they, I think they put the kids in front of their, their career and those guys were looking for jobs and, and they did the right thing by sticking around and, and, you know, and coaching. Um, it was a tough situation. You know, we had the early signing day was the, the morning of the, the bowl game. And so, you know, when I got here, I had a chance to look at the scholarship numbers to do a quick evaluation of the team. I, I went to practice one of the first days I had the job. And just saw, you know, wow, we've got to get better at certain spots and we've got to get bigger. And so first thing I did was try to identify some junior college offensive linemen and go and go find those guys and sign them as quickly as we could. So, you know, you're trying to put together a coaching staff. A lot of the guys that I was trying to hire were coaching teams in bowl games that were playing at a later date. So filled in as quickly as I could in some spots um, while you're trying to balance recruiting. And then, as I said, tried to prioritize, um, you know, who we needed to bring in. We basically had one recruiting weekend uh, before the early signing period. So I went out and found some JC players that, that thought could help us immediately. Uh, you know, they were going to be December uh, graduates and, and January enrollees. That was really important. And then tried to get to know the kids that were committed to the program and, and you know, and try to get them settled down. You know, a lot of those kids wanted to sign early. 
you know, I felt like it was probably in their best interest and our best interest uh, to get to know us a little bit and have a chance for us to get to know them. And so, you know, we felt like we traded some, some guys. We lost a couple here to, to some places and then added some guys we felt like were a little bit better fit. So as you can imagine, I mean, it was just a crazy, a crazy couple of months. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, trying to coach a bowl game. And so what I, what I did is I said, look, I can't change anything. I'm not going to come in here and, you know, be able to put in a new offense in, in four practices or five practices uh, or a new defense. And so I just told everybody, look, we'll, we'll continue to do what you've done. Um, you know, I'll try to provide as much support as I can for the players. Um, you know, the, the offensive staff was really a, a couple of graduate assistants um, and some, you know, quality control guys that had been moved up to full-time positions, you know, for the bowl game. So it was, it was a crazy, crazy week, um, you know, and I, I never had a sense that our players were in a really good uh, spot mentally. A lot going on. Yeah, there was just a lot going on, and there was, you know, just a lot of turmoil. Um, and, and those guys didn't know me and, you know, who's this guy and what happened to, to all our coaches and, you know. And so there was just so much happening. Um, and so, you know, you could get a sense that we weren't in a great spot mentally, you know, tried to do what we could to, to be supportive and then, and then, you know, we get into the game, first play of the game, we fumble, and, and then it kind of just took a nosedive from there. And, and so it was, it was great for me to, to, number one, just get to be around the players, um, you know, and, and I think trust is something that's earned. And so for them, you know, for me to have a chance to get to know them and them to have a chance to get to know me and hopefully for us to, to come to the conclusion that, hey, look, we, we trust each other. I trust these kids are going to do the right thing, and they trust that I care about them. You know, more than just is, is more than just football players, and so that that was a good start that way. Um, it was a good chance for me to evaluate our talent and kind of see what where we needed to upgrade and what we needed to do. It was a great chance to me to, for also to see, you know, just the intangible things off the field. What you know, how can we improve these things? And and again, came away saying, you know, strength and conditioning is going to be so important for us and nutrition. You know, just because again we were, were not a we were not a big team physically, and, and and walked away from that saying, look, we've got to invest in nutrition, we've got to get these kids bigger, we've got to add weight to them, um, you know, and and just gave me your strength and conditioning hires always big, um, but you know it put even more emphasis on that on that hire for me, um, and so anyway we were fortunate to to, to hire Kaz Kazadi, who I think is one of the best strength coaches in in college football. Um, you know, has been part of a, a rebuild at Baylor uh, with Art. Um, you know, if you look at what they did there, you know, they were physical in the run game. You know, everybody talks about throwing the ball and, and all the numbers they put up. Well, they, they knocked people around more than anything else, and they ran the football. Um, and so that was kind of the mentality we wanted to have as, as we got in here, and Kaz has been an amazing hire for us. Does a great job with our players, building culture and toughness and mentality and, and – um, you know, and getting the guys bigger and stronger. So it was a crazy, crazy time. You know, one of those deals takes about five years off your life when you go through <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um, it was the third time I'd gone through it. And, and, you know, fortunately, I did have some experience dealing with it a little bit. And, you know, to me, what you learn is that, you know, not to, not to rush through things. You know, hiring a coaching staff is the most important thing you do. You know, and, and so we went slow and we went slow intentionally. And, it, you know, we, we, I interviewed a lot of guys. I think I interviewed over 30 people uh, for, for different jobs. Um, and just trying to find the right combination of guys that fit, you know, what we want to get accomplished here. And so, um, you know, it was a busy, it's a busy month. You know, the bowl game, the early sign-in, then trying to hire staff, then getting back out on the road in January, you know, and then continuing to try to hire guys right up to signing day and, and get your coaching staff filled out and then, once that happens, then you're on to spring football and then, you know, on to, to April and May recruiting. And so it just never slows down. And, mm -hmm. and this time of the year is such an important time uh, in, in your in your team's development. Mm -hmm. So you're a Texas Tech alum, but you play baseball there. Your dad, obviously, the Dykes name goes a long way in Lubbock. But you jump in from, from baseball going into the high school coaching game. I, I need to hear the story of the sort of the transition of being like, okay, I play baseball, but I'm going to go back in and I'm going to be yeah. a football coach. Yeah, it was what, a weird deal. That? Yeah, part of it was um, – just, you know, if I was going to play football, it was going to be at a smaller level, you know, where, where I had a better chance to play baseball at a higher level. And so, you know, it's one of those things. Had my dad not been the football coach at Texas Tech, I probably would have walked on football <laughs> team 
but I didn't really want to put him in that situation and didn't want to put myself in that situation. So just played baseball, but, but hung around the football program, you know, and I think probably uh, about my junior year realized I wanted to get into coaching, you know, thought I might want to go to law school. Uh, and then I shadowed a lawyer for about 48 hours and I was like, I'm definitely not going to I law that's school. The, that's the story of many. <laughs> yeah, many guys. <laughs> yeah, it's law school is what you do when you don't really know what you want to do. And then, and then you watch those guys work and you're like, man, I can't, I don't know how they do it. Uh, but, it, it, you know, so it was something that, that I decided I wanted to do. And so I started volunteer coaching uh, when I was in high school at Friendship High School, a uh, program outside of Lubbock, and just kind of hanging around more than anything else and trying to learn. And, and really my goal was to go be a high school coach. You know, I'd seen my dad move around a lot, and, you know, I wanted to have a little bit more stability. That was my biggest thing is, is you know, and so – that time, South Lake Carroll was like a little two or three A school, probably 3A at the time. And I remember, you know, driving out to, to Dallas and seeing South Lake and thinking, man, this would be a really good place to live. And I'd like to get a job at South Lake Carroll, stay there for 30 years and, you know, eventually be the head coach. And, you know, and that way you have that stability that you never really had kind of growing up. Well, of course, it didn't work out that way. <laughs> Life never does. <laughs> I, no, it doesn't. And so I think I've moved 20 times since then. <laughs> um my nine-year-old has lived in five different houses and four different states. Um, but that's just coaching, you know, and that's the way it goes. And you know how it is. It, it never really turns out the way you think it's going to. And I've just been to blessed. Every experience that I've had has been a great experience and re- been really blessed in, in this profession and gotten to do some really cool things and work with some great coaches and, and some, you know, remarkable players. And that's you just kind of start looking back at stuff and you just go, wow. You know, how fortunate was I to work with, with these guys? First pick in the NFL draft, Super Bowl MVP, mm-hmm. you know, kind of once in a generation tight end. I mean, just some, a bunch of different guys. And so, um, so anyway, I, I, I transitioned out of baseball into football and took a job here in Dallas. It, it, well, really took a job at Monahan's High School out in, out in West Texas and was there for the spring semester, coached baseball, and then took a job in Dallas at Pierce High School. And, and that's kind of when I, I remember – I started looking at SMU and going, this would really be a fun place to coach. Um, you know, I kind of grew up an SMU fan. You know, my dad had been at the University of Texas uh, in the 70s through Darrell Royal's run. And then we left there and had moved around to, to you know, New Mexico and Mississippi State and Midland Lee High School. And and so during that time, you know, I'd kind of adopted SMU as my, my favorite team. And that was when, you know, they were rolling, you Pony know, the Express. Pony Express and, yeah, and, you know, Dickerson and James and Lance McElhaney, and they were just a blast to watch, you know, and it was kind of, um, it was kind of like USC on the West Coast. I mean, it was where all the stars used to hang out on the sideline, and, and uh, just watching them, I, I just was like, wow, this is really cool. This is a, this is a, a really cool place, and, um, and then like I said, once I started coaching at Pierce, you know, just got around the campus and the community and, and saw what Highland Park was like, and you know, just always thought, wow, if I could uh, coach there someday, that would be, that would be a really cool experience. Um, and so anyway, moved on from there to, to Navarro Junior College, got into, my dad called me one day and said, if you want to get into college, you better make that transition. And I said, well, I don't care anything about coaching in college. And went out and watched them practice one time, saw Navarro practice and saw the players out there and thought, wow, it'd be really cool to coach guys like this because they had such good players back then and, and they st- still do. But um, you know, and, and got into that and then did that for a couple of years and then got the big break I, that everybody's got to get in their career where had a chance to go to, to, to Kentucky uh, with Mike Leach and, and, and Hal Mummy, uh, 1997 as a graduate assistant. Legendary staff, to yeah, say the least. Yeah, so I was lucky. I had a chance to be, you know, on Hal Mummy staff and, you know, it was, it was what, what a great deal, you know. And Chris Hatcher and I were GAs together, and Chris has had a ton of success as a head coach. And, you know, Guy Morris was on the staff and Tony Franklin. And, I mean, it was just, you know, and obviously Mike and the success he had. And so it was just a really cool time to be learning the game, you know, and, and had a chance to work with those guys. And, you know, really, I, I think Hal Mummy is the guy that really revolutionized college football. I think you go back and you look at what he did at Kentucky and bringing the – the air raid to Kentucky, the success he had uh, in the Southeastern Conference, and then obviously when Mike, you know, left in '99 to become the the coordinator at Oklahoma, uh, the success Oklahoma had, and then you know Mike going to Texas Tech in 2000, and I was fortunate enough to catch up with him at that point, and 
and go be part of that. And we, when we started in the Big 12, you know, it was a run league. Everybody was, you know, kind of two backs and, and running the football. And then, you know, when I left in 2006, everybody was running some form of the spread. And so it was really fun to just be part of that whole transformation in college football. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, it was a pretty awesome time and, you know, a great chance to be around fantastic coaches. You know, Dana Holgerson was the inside receivers coach and Art Browles was coach of running backs and I coached the outside receivers. And, you know, Ruffin McNeil was on the defensive staff, went on and had great success at East Carolina. And, you know, and then our players, you know, we had Sonny Cumbie and we had Cliff Kingsbury and we had uh, Lincoln Riley was a student coach for us at the time. And, I mean, there was just a lot of guys that, um, you know, have been really successful, and it was fun. We used to sit around, and, you know, Dave Aranda was a GA at, at that time I on our staff that. as well. That's, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, Dave was a GA for us then, too, <laughs> and, you know, and we just – it was just a really cool place to to be, and, you know, we just sit around and talk football all the time. And, and I think the, the great lesson we all learned from Mike was, you know, don't be afraid to think outside the box and to do something that's different. Um, you know, don't be afraid to, to screw something up, and that's what – what Hal Mummy always used to say, and he always used to write it on his, his script before the game, was to don't take uh, don't take counsel of your fears, and you know just let it wing. And and that's what I learned from those guys is hey, and and you know don't don't be afraid of what's going to happen. Just go make something happen. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, so it's, it's a, it was an awesome time to be there. We it was great because we were, um, you know, we were pretty open and talking to people about what we were doing in football and. I look back on some of that and say, well, I wish we hadn't had to share it as much as we did. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, it was a cool time to be there and just a great experience. Yeah, I, I've, I've gotten in the habit of asking a lot of coaches this. What is your, your best Mike Leach story? You've been around him a long oh, time. Oh, my God. I mean, I could tell you. Uh, I mean, I could write a book. Uh, <laughs> Please do. Listen, be a ghostwriter. I, I got some time. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's, there's too many to even, even get started. Um, you know, if I told one, I certainly wouldn't be doing it justice just because there's so many. Um, you know, I mean, going back to kind of what I said earlier, I mean, Mike was just the absolute best uh, at, you know, just kind of being authentic and being himself. And, you know, there were times when all of us would be like, Coach, you know, you can't do this or you can't do that or, you know, you got to do this and you got to do that. And he just always was like, Who says? Yeah, who, who said I can't do that? Yeah. And, yeah, you worry about yourself. Don't worry about me, you know. And, and, uh, he was just he was great that way, and I think that was the biggest lesson we took or took away was, you know, he wasn't afraid to try anything, but he was really really disciplined in his approach, you know, and um, and one thing we would always do at the end of spring ball, or at the end of the season really, we would sit down and we would say, okay, you know, what what do we need to add, you know, do is there something that we're missing or is something that somebody's doing that's going to make us better that fits into what we're doing. And so, you know, we'd go all over the country and talk to coaches and, you know, go to the NFL or go to small colleges and talk to those guys about what they were doing or just anybody that was doing something well. And then we would all come back with these ideas and we'd sit down and we'd talk to coach about it and say, yeah, that's awesome. So what are we going to cut? You know, and we were like, well, we're not going to cut anything. We're just going to add this one thing. And he'd be like, no, if we're going to add something, we're cutting something. And I think that's the genius of Mike was, you know, everybody's taken kind of this offense and, and gone to a different place with it. And it's really been successful. I mean, there's been, you know, if you looked at the top 10 college offenses year in, year out, I mean, six or seven of them are going to be running some version of what yeah, we're Mike's doing. fingerprints are all over. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and they are. And, and um, But everybody's changed, you know, and evolved. And, and the thing about Mike, I mean, Mike hadn't changed a bit, you know, and, and – what what I think we all learned from from Mike and really from Hal Mummy was how to practice. You know how how do you practice and and how does that translate to having success? And and you know Hal was so specific in the drills that we did. You know you'd, you'd run these wide receiver drills and you catch these balls and you do all this stuff. And you know we were always like you know well I'm not going to be throwing balls to receivers. So let's, let's don't have me throw balls to receivers. Let's have our quarterback throw balls to receivers. And so, I mean, he was just so practical and disciplined in his approach to, to teaching fundamentals and to teaching technique and, and really simplistic. You know, you would watch us play and you'd, be, you'd go, wow, they're doing all this stuff. And, and that was the, the magic of it. And what made it work is there was very little scheme. 
you know there just wasn't a lot now there were some tags off of it and and some things that once you learned the the basic stuff then you could you know you could expand on it a little bit but what made it all work was just the the ability to execute at a very high level mm-hmm. and and that's what what those offenses have always done and done well mm-hmm. but finally you know what's a lesson you feel like you learned from your dad about being a head coach that, that you hear yourself saying and you say wow it's I think maybe maybe all those things he told me really did did stick in my head. Yeah, I think I think he what he always did was was two things. I think number one, you know, just be be transparent and be authentic and be truthful with with your staff, with your players, uh, with high school coaches, you know, with everybody. You know what I mean? I think that's the one thing that he always said what he meant and he always meant what he said, and um, you know, and he just that's just his approach to life. And I think the second thing was just to, to treat people a certain way. You know, I think that that's what he did so well is he treated, um, you know, he treated the guy that cleaned up the locker room the same as he treated the university president. And it's just the way he was raised and, and you know, he, he raised us that way too. And so, um, you know, just, just uh, you know, when he passed, I was, I was really uh, shocked at how many, um, you know, people – I, that I heard from afterwards that, that told me, boy, your dad, you know, really changed my life or your dad really did this for me. And, you know, your dad wrote me all these letters of encouragement. And, you know, I had, I had really no idea he was a letter writer. I knew he wrote me some from time to time. But, you know, I, I had hundreds of people say, you know, your dad used to write me once a week when I was down on my luck. And, and so I think that's what he did remarkably well was, you know, when somebody needed some help, he was always there. You know, he was always there to... You know, um, people always want to be around people that are on top. Well, he, he was attracted to people that were going through hardship. And so I think that was the greatest thing I learned was just how important it is to have people like that in your life and, and what a difference you can make in kids' life, um, you know, in, in people's lives, uh, acquaintances, friends. Uh, you can make a big difference in people's lives that you never really had any idea you were making a difference in. And, and so, you know, I think that's the value of, of, of what we do. You know, we get to work with young people and we get to, um, you know, to watch them grow up and we get to be part of that process. And then you get to have a coaching staff of, you know, when you have young coaches and you get to mentor those guys and, and you get to just watch people, you know, grow into what they hope to become. And so from that perspective, uh, you know, I, I, I really was fortunate to, to, to be raised by somebody that really valued that and, and uh, and I think that's the biggest thing I learned. Thanks. Thanks for the time, Sonny. Thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks, David. Thanks for having me. So that's this week's show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I want to thank our guest, Bruce Feldman. Again, you can uh, read him at Sports Illustrated. You can watch him on any number of Pac-12, Big 12 broadcasts on the Fox family of networks. Listen to his podcast with Stu Mandel, The Audible. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Max Thompson, who clicks all the buttons and uh, edits out uh, all of the the stuff we don't want in the show. We'll have a cutting room floor episode one of these days. There's like eight seconds this season on the cutting floor or cutting room floor. And of course, thank you to the North Texas Honda dealers. Uh, they drive the show. It's their job to be helpful. If you're looking for a car, stop by there and uh, check it out. They've got some great stuff. And, of course, thanks to you, the listeners. Without you, we would not have a show. Subscribe, rate, review if you get a chance. It only makes the show stronger. That's it for this week's episode. We'll see you guys again very, very soon.